And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Coming up on today's Audible, we talk about the three-star recruit who didn't exist. Some Tennessee Vols football and answer your mailbag questions. That's next on the Audible. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined, as always, by Bruce Feldman. Not a lot going on right now to talk about in college football, Bruce, but there was one uh, really interesting story as pertains to recruiting that we wanted to get into today. We should get on a guest to talk about that. Who do you think we should have? Well, given he wrote the, to this point, definitive story for The Athletic, it's David Ubbin, our Tennessee writer, to talk about Blake Carringer, the three-star recruit that didn't exist. Kind of a crazy story last week that Rivals and 247 somehow ended up listing a player and his scholarship offers and the player. He's a real person, but he's definitely not a 6'6", 315-pound offensive lineman with scholarship offers. So David tried to get to the bottom of what really happened there. And let's bring him on now to talk about that story. We're pleased now to be joined by our colleague at The Athletic, David Ubbin, he is our Tennessee Vols writer most of the time, but a story recently took place in his backyard there in Knoxville that really captured the college football world's attention and, and to his credit, went out and tried to get to the bottom of what happened. David, first of all, how did you first hear about Blake Carringer, the fictional three-star recruit that, that uh, somehow fooled rivals in 247 and the Knoxville News Sentinel? last week i think there was uh one or two local radio shows that had referenced it and i wasn't exactly sure kind of what was going on or any details but i was like this sounds interesting and the more i kind of asked around and the more details i found the more interesting it got and then i think it was wednesday or thursday afternoon uh was when it sort of went to the next level when some of that social media buzz was kind of happening around the story uh, I think SB Nation like aggregated a bunch of it, and I can't. I think a bunch of other like the kids that I talked to that were involved. So I said they saw a lot of stuff on Barstool, but pretty much everybody was kind of writing about this thing exists. But I kind of said there's there's definitely more to the story here, and that's kind of what we saw to to find out. Not to give away too much of the story, David, but what was the biggest thing that surprised you in in the course of your reporting? I mean, I think two things. I mean, one just like how half-hearted this attempt was to it was just a joke they weren't really trying to get anyone over they were just like you know kind of just playing around like just dumb high school stuff they weren't even putting very much effort into it and just like how unconvincing and simple it was it was literally like six tweets and all and this thing ballooned into you know a really embarrassing saga for the recruiting service industry in general uh and i think too you know, my personal favorite tidbit from the story, uh, one of the guys that I talked to was Wes Dorsey, who is a, a kid who just signed with Western Kentucky, 
uh, ironically or coincidentally coached by Tyson Helton, who was Tennessee's offensive coordinator last year. But he just signed with Western Kentucky, and he's a real three-star recruit. And he was one of the star players for, uh, for Grace Christian Academy last year. And he was ranked almost 1,700 spots lower in last year's ranking than the fake uh, Blake Carringer, who is a real person that is not very good at football. He was ranked almost 1,700 bucks lower on 24-7's composite rankings uh, than his uh, fake teammate. Uh, so, very interesting, to say yeah, the least. Yeah, one of the amusing things to me is that, and it's it's a little unclear how Blake ended up being the poster of this, but so it's not just that he is, you know, much shorter and, and much smaller than the 6'6", 315-pound listing, but, I mean, I don't know if they're just giving him a hard time, but they make it seem like of all the players on the team, they picked, like, you know, the guy that barely comes off the bench to turn into the supposed recruit with offers from Alabama and Georgia. Yeah, that was kind of it. It's just like they were kind of messing around. They're like, who'd be the funniest person to make a fake recruiting account for? And it was pretty much him. You know, they like him. He, he's pretty well liked around campus. But it was just funny because, like, he knows he's not good. He just kind of plays for fun. And he was sort of the, the funniest possible person to, to put on that list. And, and that's, that's basically how it ended up as, as him. And like I said, they put very, very little effort into this. Like they posted like five times Thanksgiving weekend and once more on December 5th. And then it kind of just sat there. At some point they got a recruiting profile uh, on both sites. And then uh, sort of a, a, a paper, an article in the local paper here in Knoxville, I guess a week and a half ago, was sort of what spawned this saga and sort of waved those red flags and ended up putting, sort of taking this catfishing to the next level. There's a story that I've been kind of playing around with a little bit from talking to some college coaches. And one had raised the point saying, you know, these kids say on their Twitter, which on their social media platforms now, just received an offer from so-and-so. And then you can't, if you're the coach to that school or you're in the recruiting office, you can't say, no, that's not true. But what happens a lot of times now, and according to this coach is, you know, you somebody says we offered and then all of a sudden some other school may see that and then they're going to offer the kid, especially if it's a kid in your area. And he said, there's, it's really not much recourse to, to diffuse that or to clear it up because you just you should not you're not in the business of doing that and so it gets to be very a a weird gray area that i mean what's interesting about the story you wrote about david was this is so much more of a farce in it what you know what what kind of caught my eye too is yours that kid is in the hub of prime recruiting country not necessarily in you know in knoxville but in Tennessee, where where two four seven sports is based, rivals is very well entrenched there. I mean, if that kid was from Idaho or somewhere where, okay, most people probably there's not a network that is seeing that kid, but you just get word of mouth. You would think, okay, there's a better chance to find you know to have this Bigfoot recruiting person that nobody really knows about, but just there's some, some quote unquote buzz. But in this case, it's curious is that you would think people would have gone, Oh, okay, well we've been to that school. There's no such kid or that this doesn't line up. That's the part that was a head scratcher to me. When, when you were talking about this, when you go out and try to figure out where the disconnect was with rivals, 
do you think they'll they'll give more information down the road about how this screw up just happened or is it just they're just hoping it goes away i think they're hoping it goes away i mean i spent pretty much most of my monday trying to figure out sort of you know i had two main questions to, to, to try and answer and that is one like how did rivals and 24 seven figure out that this was wrong because the coach of the high school told me he didn't call anyone. And the main reporter who runs a small high school prep site in the area, he said he didn't talk to anyone either. So we don't really know how the recruiting sites figured it out. And my question was, how do you make the decision? If you're not calling him and you're not figuring this out, how do you make the decision to delete the profile? Because you might think he's fake, but if you, you don't know that and you delete his profile and then he's actually a six, six, 315 pound kid, well, now you're kind of hindering like his recruiting a little bit. Maybe not in a real sense, but the height thing is very real. And kids, you know, how many kids do you know that will be four-star recruits or high three-star recruits that if they got their recruiting profiles we know the two major services wouldn't be furious, and that would be a black mark on your company. So I haven't really gotten any good answers for how the recruiting services figured out they messed up, but they definitely messed up. I mean, it's a pretty big L for both of those groups to take. And either way, I think it's certainly, you know, one of the things we didn't really touch on in this story, but there's always kind of been this skepticism in the recruiting industry that, that some of these rankings are, are based a little bit more on who offers you and where you're committed than independent analysis from people that are actually employed by these places. And, and you could make the argument that, you know, they're trusting college coaches to maybe be more accurate, but, you know, that's not what folks are paying for generally. And so this was sort of that idea taken to the absolute extreme of like all this kid had were these written offers that no one had really verified. And he was now a top thousand recruit in America and a pretty high three star based on literally like five tweets. So not a, not a great look. I wanted to talk about a part of that. So when when the story first came out last week, my initial reaction was I, because first of all, this is, you know, back in the days of, of super prep. And, and I mean, there were, I mean, I think this happened pretty regularly. Uh, you know, you could call into the newspaper and, and say you're such and such and star high school player, and it would fall through the cracks because uh, there wasn't much information period about the top recruits in the country. And so when this first came out, my initial reaction was, um, I can't believe this could still happen in 2019 when every kid's highlights are on video and there's no such thing as a anonymous recruit anymore. How could they possibly have gotten this through? But I've seen other people say the exact opposite and kind of what you guys are saying, which is, you know, it's surprising it doesn't happen more often. And it kind of makes you wonder, well, how do we know this does? I mean, how do we know this was the only case? Maybe there's been others who came and went without necessarily the media attention. I mean, what, what does it say to you guys about the accuracy of those services rankings? Yeah, I mean, I'm curious how far this would go if the Knoxville paper had not referenced it last week and caught the eye of other people. Like, I'm pretty confident that it happened and, and you know, and, and, and this had not sort of gained more traction uh, I, I'm curious to see how far it would have gone, but certainly we wouldn't be seeing much out of e either Rivals or 24-7. But it's a fair question that I don't know that we'll ever have a good answer to. Yeah, I think it's it's really, you know, kind of surprising that it happened at this point. But, you know, look, I mean, I think it was in your story with somebody, David, maybe came from uh, some the, the the guy from Orange Bloods who had said, well, you know, this hasn't 
happened a lot. And as much as you would think it would, I just think it's, it's an embarrassing one. And I, I don't think particularly the way it was answered in your story, you know, was particularly great either. Not on your end, but just like, it just seemed like they were just like kind of whistling by the graveyard a little bit on it. Well, Rivals has yet yeah. to explain how yeah. it happened. You know, they, they've gone into yeah, total silence. Yeah, of responsibility for sure there. And it's also, I mean, it created, and you referenced the Jeff Ketchum tweets. It used to be that, well, that there were three major services, right? Rival, Scout, and 247. 247 and Scout merged. So now it's basically these two. And so 247, Shannon Terry, the, the guy in charge there, his original reaction was to basically just blame the whole thing on rivals, refer to them as little brother, and then making it seem like, well, you know, hey, 247 has these composite rankings that, you know, are, are a combination of all the, the various sites out there. We didn't actually rank the kid. It just rivals did, and it slipped into our rankings. To which Jeff Ketchum replied, that's ridiculous. You know, somebody at that office still had to, like, manually type in that the kid had an offer from Sacred Heart. So this embarrassing moment has now touched off a bit of a war of words between those two companies. But it always feels like th those companies are kind of, like, the war of words is always it's kind of always bubbling beneath the surface, I feel like. There's always been pretty good amount of friction between between those two companies. Shannon Terry had been one of the brains behind Rivals before he left and started it up 247 years later. And look, as, as, as I think we've talked about before, just I think the kids from that high school probably got what they wanted. They exposed the level of this recruiting business that's, I don't want to call it an ugly side, but probably an embarrassing side of it. And there's not, you know, I don't know how much more there's to say beyond that, though. Well, why don't we switch from this crazy recruiting story to the team you cover there, David? You know, I can remember you and I talking before last season about, you know, I thought Tennessee would be really, really bad in Jeremy Pruitt's first season. You were a little bit more optimistic. And it was this weird thing where most of the season they were pretty bad, but they rose up and beat a, a couple of the better teams in the conference. So he had a great recruiting class. Where do you think things stand right now with the Vols? I mean, it's, uh, I think they, they sort of, I wouldn't say they hit a reset button, but I think Jerry Pruitt handing off defensive play calling duties last week, I, that was staggering to me. Um, but they did get a good recruiting class. I mean, I think you know, the offensive line was obviously the biggest def uh, deficiency there. They addressed that. I think they have the best uh, offensive line recruiting class in the country. So that should pay off fall, but you know, you're still talking about there's a good chance that they're, they're rolling out with two true freshmen starting tackles next fall. And, you know, that's, uh, that can make life a little rough for you. But, yeah, I mean, they got to be, uh, you know, you got to get to a bowl game in year two. I think eight, eight wins would be a success for them. But, but a bowl game would, I think, be a, 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 a positive step. I don't know that it would be enough. But I think from, from my perspective, the biggest thing they got to do is, is eliminate the embarrassing losses. I mean, they went five and seven this year. Uh, but six of those losses were by, uh, I think, at least 20 points. So that, those are the things you got to eliminate. You know, I don't think at this point, Anyone's going to blame you if you lose by four touchdowns to Alabama or Georgia. But if you're losing by, you know, four touchdowns at home to Missouri or, you know, at a uh, very orange-tinted Memorial Stadium in Nashville when you're playing Vanderbilt, that's a bad, bad look. And those are the things you got to take out. So even if you go 6-6, six and six, you got to avoid that, kind of, that type of thing. David, you're around the team all the time. What is the biggest hole on this roster right now? Because... 
you look at, as you said, I mean, they lost 50 to 17 in Mizzou. I mean, the last two games, they were outscored 88 to 30 by Mizzou and Bandy. It wasn't like they got scored outscored by Alabama and LSU or Alabama and, and Georgia. So in those two, what is the part where there's a big gap there and how close are they come? How close are they right now to being at least competitive? So I think, I mean, I mentioned the offensive line. I think that's the only place where they were hugely deficient last year. But the thing about the Tennessee team that when you look at them from top to bottom, they're not bad anywhere else. They're just so average everywhere. They're average at, at, at receiver. They're average at linebacker. They were probably a little below average on the defensive line. You know, they have some promising guys in the secondary, but they're still young, and ultimately they're, they're pretty average there. I mean, you look at the NFL Combine, uh, I don't think that's gospel, but when you have 14 teams in the SEC and there's only one that doesn't have a player invited, and it's Tennessee, a program that's recruited at a top 15, top 20 level for the better part of the last decade, I mean, that's a pretty scathing indictment of the development in this program prior to Jeremy Pruitt. So I think that, you know, the offensive line, obviously, you know, we mentioned before, is the is the unit that I think got and deserved most of the scorn from last year. But just the rest of the roster, I mean, they're not above average at really any position. And so if you don't play at your absolute tip top, you can have some of those embarrassing losses. But in the same breath, they're kind of good enough where if you make some plays, you don't make mistakes, you can kind of put together games like they did against Auburn and Kentucky where you're beating teams, and sometimes that talent sort of shows through a little bit. But uh, I think that's the biggest thing is you just got to build your roster to where, you know, you start getting – you have a couple foundational players, whether that's Wanya Morris or or Darnell Rice, their new tackles that they brought in or – or whether that's Henry to Oso, one of their linebackers they brought in this year. You got to find some foundational players that they're going to blossom into stars, and then you got to sort of build up the rest of your roster. And they're just so average everywhere that that's kind of the challenge for Tennessee more than like a patchwork roster where they just have holes everywhere. I mean, they do have holes everywhere, but it's not like there's giant deep holes everywhere. It's just like they're kind of playing from the low ground all over the place, if that makes sense. You referenced Derek Ansley coming in as a defensive coordinator, which is a significant move for Jeremy Pruitt to to make that shift. He shook up the staff quite a bit, though, overall. And as you said, obviously, it wasn't a wasn't a, a terrific first year. How much do you think that is a, a just a first time head coach finding himself? I mean, one of the things that I'm curious about, and we won't know this right away, is there's some parallels between him and Will Muschamp at Florida, being that. You have a first-time head coach learning on a big stage. Now, unlike what I would argue with Kirby Smart, similarly, you know, another another Nick Saban protege who took a big job, I think he took over a much more established situation from Mark Rick, where they were where they were really good, just not great. Whereas I think Florida was 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 reeling a little bit, and certainly Tennessee was reeling. But it's hard to learn on this big stage. One of the things that I think hurt Will, Will Muschamp, looking back, was his first staff was was not put together great, and there were some there were some guys who didn't get along, and it just what didn't align. And then you're digging out of a hole. It, do you think he was digging? Jeremy Pruitt has been digging out of a hole, or these are adjustments that are just natu- naturally things that feels like he's on top of things. I mean, maybe a little bit of both. I, I think to look at the other coordinator side of the ball, I never really understood why 
if you don't want to be a spread team, you don't want to be an up-tempo team, you hire a guy like Tyson Helton whose specialty is spread and up-tempo. And Tyson Helton, you know, I talked to him after he left, and, you know, he took the high road and sort of played the company man role of, like, you know, I believe that assistants are a reflection of the head coach. You know, I'm a uh, fall-in-line kind of guy. He did what Jerry Pritt wanted to do, and if somebody wants to pay you seven digits to be a first-time play caller anywhere under any head coach, you take that job, and Tyson Helton took that job, but it was an odd fit from the beginning. And so I think you're seeing a course correction there in getting a guy like Jim Chaney, who's a more natural fit, who I think his philosophy is more aligned with what Jerry Pritt wants to do. And then Derek Ansley, I mean, we'll see. I think, you know, we say Jerry Pritt handed off the play-calling duties. I mean, two things. One... I think he's still going to have a heavy hand in the defensive play calling. Uh, and two, we'll see, you know, the first time that they struggle, if he hangs on to that privately or publicly. Um, but Jerry Wood also said that Derek Anthony is a guy that, you know, he felt like could finish his sentences. So he feels like they're pretty aligned and they have similar philosophies. Anthony's obviously spent a lot of time at Alabama. Tennessee, you know, runs a pretty similar defensive system in Alabama. So that's sort of, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, you're talking about this is a program where only four coaches in 2019 are going to have the same job they had in 2018. Uh, they make two official changes. Terry Fair, they relieve of their duties. Charles Kelly goes to Alabama. And so, yeah, I, I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think the, 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 the uh, staff had some odd fits in year one. I thought it was questionable. You have a first-time head coach. You have a first-time defensive coordinator, uh, you know, in, in, in Kevin Scherer and, and Chris, uh, Chris Rumpf, more Scherer on that side. And then a first-time play caller in Tatum Helton. I feel like having an older presence in there, whether it's a former head coach or a guy like Jim Chaney, would have made some sense in year one, where it's not a bunch of guys doing a new job for the first time and everyone's learning on the job, and you kind of soften those growing pains in year one. I mean, I think the staff makes a lot more sense. Uh, does that add up to more wins? Uh, we'll find out. But I think definitely as they sort of try to turn this roster around, they'll have a lot more tools to work with uh, in year two as they did in year one. All right, to wrap up, people always like when we talk about kind of how we do our jobs. David, we, it, was not a, um, it was not an easy assignment when you came on board. And for people who aren't familiar, you, you know, for your, most of your career, you've covered the Big 12, uh, lived in Dallas, and you know, relocated to a, a city and a part of the country you hadn't lived or worked before to cover this team that um, is not exactly known for access and making coaches and players available. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, have done just a phenomenal job of finding unique stories in a, on a beat where they don't really uh, give you much material to work with. What, what has this past year been like for you? It's been cool. I mean, I, I, this is a, was a new challenge for me. I was really excited about it. You know, I hadn't covered just one team since like 2009 when I covered Oklahoma. And so I think going back to that idea was pretty intriguing for me of sort of understanding of everything about a program from top to bottom. Uh, and doing so armed with the knowledge of, of covering it from a different perspective for most of the last decade. And so uh, it's been fun. I mean, Tennessee is such an interesting program because it's, you know, all of the programs that are fishbowls like Tennessee, you know, like Texas, like uh, Alabama, like Georgia, places where the expectations are high. There's always tons of, of eyes, you know, everywhere in the programming. Jerry Pruitt can't go out to dinner in Knoxville. That's not going to happen. It's just a different kind of place it's been an interesting year. I mean, obviously a lot of uh, ups and downs for Tennessee in year one, plenty of intrigue. Uh, and I, you know, as, as frustrating as the sort of paranoia and uh, obsessive secrecy can be, 
I kind of find that stuff actually kind of interesting um, because that's sort of a, a, a mark of the program and, and it does make our jobs more difficult. And I think it's ultimately counterproductive to them running a program. Um, but I, I just think it's interesting. And so talking about that, writing about that and doing that from that perspective, uh, I think it's been sort of interesting to see as, as Tennessee is certainly the, uh, you know, flag bearer of the type of programs that are becoming more and more common in college football. All right, David. Well, we, if you haven't, if you just listen to the podcast and you haven't already signed up for The Athletic and you're a Tennessee fan, you will be well rewarded. Uh, David's been a phenomenal hire for the company. And we would say that even if he wasn't a guest on this podcast right now. Uh, <laughs> it's the truth. So thanks for joining us on The Audible. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, that's easy enough. Just go at David Ubbin and you will get all the Tennessee coverage and more you could ever hope for. I concur with everything Bruce just said. David, thanks so much for coming on today. Anytime, guys. Thanks. Well, we appreciate David for joining us, Stu. Uh, before we get to the mailbag, a little bit of, call it news, a little item that popped up on social media earlier in the week. Trevor Lawrence, freshman sensation, quarterback for Clemson. Uh, there was a barstool a sports video of him objecting to a getting picked around midcourt in a Clemson intramural game. I was surprised to see him playing in a game just because at this point you wonder about any risk of injury. He obviously took issue with being screened. Faux pas on the guy who set the pick on the star of the Clemson national title team? Well, I know a lot of people are surprised to see that he's playing intramural sports. I think that may be a unique to Clemson thing. I could see Dabo, I don't know if he's talked about this yet, but I could see Dabo saying, oh, you know, we just hear Clemson, we like kids to enjoy their, to be, to be college kids. I don't think Tua is going to be playing IMs at Alabama, let's put it that way. Well, all it takes is one guy to blow out an ACL in one of these things, though, or get undercut, and then all of a sudden it, like, forces people to rethink things. Right. Yes, I'm sure that some people cringed when they saw him out there. I just, I just found it amusing in that, you know, after the national title game, you had all those breathless hot takes about, oh, he should be allowed to go to the NFL right now. It's so stupid that he has to stay in college for another two years. And meanwhile, he's just out there playing pickup basketball like any other college kid. So I got a kick out of that. Would you have set a screen on him? (laughs) I was never one to set screens to begin with. I was more the guy to just kind of like camp out and hope nobody noticed me so I could get an open shot. But uh, yeah, I could see that being controversial. Yeah, I don't know. That I could see people who were ticked off about it and his reaction to it because it's like, well, you're playing. You, what do you expect? I mean, I wouldn't have been the one if you're on that campus to to do that at that point. But look, these things happen, and because everything gets seen on social media, then it takes on a life of its own. We should get to the mailbag, right? We should get to the mailbag, but before I do, I have to make a confession. Last week, we answered several mailbag questions. And then there were some audio problems after the fact, and we had to cut all but one of them out. So today we're going to be answering a couple questions that you and I have actually already done this before, but the public didn't get to hear it. And as always, you can send... The real shame of it is that the people got to miss out hearing you repeatedly give out the email address correctly. And the email address, of course, that you can always send your questions to is theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Let us start today with... Trent in Bucharest, Romania. Do you think it's Bucharest or Bucharest? 
I don't know. At one point I got it in full disclosure. I got this wrong in my head of thinking about Budapest and and two idiots that we both are just kind of rolled right through it. So we apologize. We're probably wrong either way. Just happy to have a listener in Romania. He says, I've heard nothing but praise for Oklahoma's hire of Alex Grinch as the defensive coordinator. He is from Ohio and spent one year at Ohio State. But that year was Ohio State's worst defense in at least 20 years. And with Greg Schiano being let go, it is apparent that Ryan Day did not want to keep him since the succession would have been seamless. So why is this hire so well received by the media? Well, first of all, I don't think you can put what Ohio State's defense did on Alex Grinch. So when he left Washington State and that move was in the works and he's had opportunities to actually be a head coach and wanted to go work for Urban Meyer. Everything happened with Greg Schiano in Tennessee kind of blew up. Greg Schiano stayed there. Greg Schiano ran the defense. Alex Grinch wasn't the play caller there and didn't have a ton of ton of influence on, on exactly what they were doing. So why I would say you should feel feel confident if you're an Oklahoma fan at this. When he was at Washington State, he turned a god-awful Cougars defense that did not have a lot of NFL talent. I mean, they were undersized. They had some speed, but it wasn't like they had, you know, Alabama or LSU speed and just smaller guys. I mean, they just didn't have a lot. And when I talked to coaches in the Pac-12, they would say the toughest guy to prepare for as a caller was Alex Grinch because he was so unpredictable. And so his rep is real. And of all the, and I've said this before, and I certainly said it last week, of all the guys on the Mike Leach tree, to me, the best hire he has ever made as a head coach was Alex Grinch. Alex Grinch was the safeties coach at Mizzou, and Mike Leach hired him. And, and when you're the defensive coordinator for Mike Leach, you were the head coach of defense. It's not like he has any responsibility in that part of the process. And that was an A-plus hire. And I think, if again, I, I think Oklahoma has a long ways to go on defense. But I think that was a really good move by Lincoln Riley. Yeah, I'm with you. And the thing that I think makes it a, a, a very kind of a perfect fit kind of situation is so many of these air raid teams just can't seem to play good defense. And, and there have been many theories why. But when you think about, for instance, Oklahoma State or Texas Tech or Cal when Sonny Dykes was there, it's like if you run that style of offense, then you're going to give up, you know, 550 yards a game on defense and Washington state under Grinch who, and of course they're the, he's the original air raid coach and Leach got to the point where they were playing truly respectable defense and, and frankly winning some games in the PAC 12 because of it. So for Oklahoma, which is in a situation where obviously the last couple of years, they couldn't have been much worse on defense. And Lincoln Riley is also very much air raid uh, guru. It makes sense to try to see if they can make that marriage work again. So, yeah, I'm optimistic for them. It's Oklahoma. They have athletes. They can't be totally, you know, the struggles they've had on defense the last couple of years can't be totally due to lack of talent. I don't think they have a Tommy Harris or Teddy Lehman. It's not those days. But they've got some players, and, and they do have, I believe, 10 starters coming back this year. So we'll see what kind of impact he can have. Turning our attention to this question from John Webb, Bruce and Stu, love the show. Uh, in order to increase club seating and respond to declining attendance, many colleges have reduced or plan to reduce seating capacity. See Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, Tennessee, Florida State, Miami, Penn State, etc. 
I've even heard rumors that Georgia Tech is thinking of removing the North Stands upper deck at Bobby Dodd, capacity 12,000 that was added in 2003. What, and is now exclusively used to house Clemson and Georgia fans every two years. Will this trend continue? If so, where does it end? What will Power 5 stadiums look like in 20 years? You know, I do think the trend will continue. An interesting one he didn't mention in here, Bruce, TCU Stadium. I want to say this was now six or seven years ago. They completely redid that stadium and turned it into a nice, really nice, really cozy atmosphere with a much lower capacity. Stanford Stadium was big enough at one point to host a Super Bowl. They tore it down and built a new one that's uh, maybe 50,000. So I think uh, some of the schools he listed here, you know, are not nearly that drastic. Alabama's reducing its seating capacity by a couple thousand. Well, USC Uh, as well. The one that I think, you know, when listening to the question, I think in a lot of ways the model could be what Utah has. I mean, Utah has a really cool home field advantage. It's pretty loud and... You know, they come out and support it They're They take a lot of pride in their student section and everything like that. And I think that is a good example of what you what you'll see more and more of is downsized. I don't want to call it intimate, but I just feel like where seats matter. And I think that that would be something that is more cost effective than some of these other stadiums where you have. And granted, if it's a stadium that you're playing in a pro team or something, you know, where University of Miami sh- shares it with the Dolphins, a little different dynamic, certainly with with the Rams and USC right now in the same place, it's a little different. But it's something where I think it, it just is a much different experience, not just from a noise capacity, but just from from what you have for fans. I think. When it's Alabama or Penn State, those schools are always going to be able to get, as long as their teams are good, 100,000 people in the stadium. I don't think they're worried about that. I think it's still going to be, a, you know, they're never going to tear that thing in half. Uh, but other schools do have problems filling smaller size stadiums. And so it's really a trend. It's, it's trickling down from the pros, frankly, where some, a part of it is just straight up financial, obviously. How can you maximize revenue? How can you make the most money? Well, put more club seats in, put more luxury suites in where you can, which is not always possible, by the way, in some of these old stadiums. USC at the Coliseum, I was there for a game this year where like one whole side is basically was under construction and, you know, where they're going to be putting in these new suites in a, how old is the Coliseum, 1930s? Yeah, it was a it's, really old it's stadium. almost 100 years old. So it's, it's more challenging to do it at a place like that. But when you look at some of the newer NFL stadiums or Major League Baseball stadiums, they're not trying to build them to be massive and cram the most number of people in there. They're trying to make it the most, you know, fan-friendly environment. And uh, that trend is now trickling down to college. Uh, I do think that that's not going to solve all your problems. You know, another thing that they need to be doing and maybe you're starting to be a little more aware of is, you know, making your schedule better. Uh, There's a reason Greg Byrne, the Alabama AD, is now starting to schedule you know, home and homes with teams like Texas and Notre Dame, because the fans there are just completely tuning out when they play three nobodies at home. You know, even, uh, you might say Alabama fans are spoiled, but even they are not interested in going at 11 a.m. Central to watch Alabama win by 50. So that's reducing the size of the stadium is not going to cure your attendance problems necessarily. But I do think that he let's see. Ultimately, he asked, "What will Power Five stadiums look like in 20 years?" I don't ever think I am able to predict things 
20 years in the future, but maybe five to 10 years in the future, more, more schools taking on projects like the one that USC is doing right now. Okay, we turn to John Polzer, P-O-L-Z-E-R. Guys, why are you not talking more about the Longhorns? With back-to-back top five recruiting classes and a victory over an SEC powerhouse and Oklahoma, you'd think there'd be more buzz going into next season with the returning quarterback and a lot of other athletes returning. It seems like there's been a lot of talk about the little brother Aggies. I guess this is probably in response to us having Jimbo on, huh? Uh, Having one great recruiting class, but without the high-end victories that Texas posted last year. Not surprisingly, Aggies can turn close losses into victories. As a side note, thank you to Bruce for referring me via Zach Spavital to a good coffee house in Manhattan Beach. Do tell us, Bruce, what coffee house we should be going to in Manhattan Beach. Uh, That would be Two Guns. It is in, I'd say it's in North Manhattan. It's off of Sepulveda. So uh, I'm glad he liked that. I think we've talked up Texas or, you know, I know I've talked it up a little bit internally in some... uh, some future discussions I've had with my colleagues at Fox. When you look at what they have, I think most people see them as a top 10 team. And certainly they, they have, uh, are coming off of a couple of back to back, really strong recruiting classes. I think what helps them is Colin Johnson decided to stay. Now, well, Jordan Humphrey decided to go and he was a key piece for them, but obviously Sam Ellinger played terrific at the end of the year. We got to see if their run game gets cranked up. They're going to lose some key offensive linemen. You know, they should be still good in the secondary. All they lose a couple of cornerbacks and they lose Gary Johnson, who could make a lot of sideline sideline plays. I mean, look, we know Jalen Hurts went to OU and we know Lincoln Riley's had a, a ridiculous amount of success now with, with transfer quarterbacks. I mean, what percentage wise do you feel like it's a 50 50 deal between OU and Texas to see who wins the Big 12? Or is there some dark horse in there? When you look at the Big 12 right now, to me, I think it is, and I'm not saying nobody else has a chance, whether it's Iowa State or TCU or whoever, but I think when I look at it between the top team in there, I think it's a toss-up the way I see it because of what Sam, the way he finished the year on, between Texas and OU. I mean, OU has some sizable question marks now as well compared to how much I think Texas has closed the gap, especially the way they finished the year. Well, yeah, Texas has definitely closed the gap. I do think the Jalen Hurts thing was a bit of a game changer in the big, when you're looking at the Big 12 for next season. If, they, if Oklahoma had been going into the year with either Austin Kendall or Spencer Rattler, who neither of whom have really done anything yet, and Texas has Sam Ellinger, you'd say advantage Texas. But now they've got, Oklahoma's got another proven transfer quarterback to play in that system. I, I, I think Oklahoma's still the heavy favorite. You know, with Texas, I'm trying to be cautiously optimistic for them. I don't want to downplay winning 10 games, beating a really good Georgia team in the bowl game. But if you look at some of the computer rankings, advanced stats, you know, they were not a top 10 team last season. They were closer to like 25th. Uh, in fact, let's see, Bill Connolly's rankings. Yeah, 25th. I mean, you're seeing that in some of the pre-se- early preseason projections for next year as well. They did still lose to Maryland. They did still lose to Oklahoma State. You know, they were still kind of an up and down team. And uh, it's not going to be the most experienced team next season. Like, they're going to bring back Ellinger, obviously, which is very important, but they lose a whole bunch of starters on defense. So I think that it's natural to say, okay, they made a big jump in year two. They're going to make an even bigger jump in year three. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, 
it might be an accomplishment for them to end up 10 and four again. Um, well, with all the Texas love, sorry, John, we can at least do this for you. Stu, his name is Sam Ellinger. Yes, you've corrected me on that before. My bad. It's becoming like Mariota and Mariota. God forbid Robert Candici comes back to college football because I remember how much trouble you had with the whole with that whole name too. So it's taken me two years to, to confidently say Tua Tonga Vailoa. I, I avoided saying his last name for probably well not two years, but all all of last off season. It's okay. I I still probably say what state Las Vegas is in wrong. So how do you say it? Nevada. That's correct. All right. Before we go on, since uh, we mentioned Alex Grinch in Oklahoma, we got some nice compliments from having Jimmy Ray on our podcast last week. And one of the comments came from AJ Winters on Twitter, AJ Winters 3. Really great interview on the pod. It would be great if you all would mention that the Sooners football team integrated in 1956 with the great Prentice Gott, J-U-T-T. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. So that's a name, honestly, I was not familiar with, and I should be because it's in the uh, OU, uh, on the OU campus, prominently displayed. So Stu, uh, I did a little bit of reading up on Dr. Gott. He was given a scholarship in the mid-late 50s by Bud Wilkinson. Turned out to be a uh, really, really good player, Orange Bowl MVP in his senior year. He was named the Academic All-America team, played professionally with the Cleveland Browns and the old St. Louis Cardinals, and when he was coaching at Mizzou, earned his Ph.D. in psychology, and he was the first assistant commissioner for the old Big 8 conference and really had quite an impact. So I appreciate A.J. for enlightening us on that. You know, one of the things you said on the podcast last week that didn't actually make it to air was we want to have more guests like Jimmy Ray or... Uh, more interviews like yours with Manny Diaz here in the offseason, kind of interesting, uh, less conventional figures. So email us at theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Let us know if there are particular guests you'd like to see us try to get beyond like our regular rotation of Fox Sports analysts and athletic writers and, and I don't know, who else do we usually have on? Ne'er-do-wells. There, um, <laughs> there you go. This question comes from Scott Irwin at Scott underscore Irwin one. Has a team ever been ranked in the top 25 preseason after going four and eight or worse the previous year? Hashtag GBR. So obviously that is in reference to Scott Frost, Nebraska Cornhuskers in year two. Stu, do you know the answer? Because I have found out the answer. Four and eight or worse? Yes. I saw the Tennessee is popping up in, in like the FPI top 25. So, but they were five and seven. And then the year that everybody was all over Washington and it turned out to be correct, even they were seven and six the year before. So four and eight ranked in the preseason top twenty-five. It's gotta be it's gotta be Notre Dame. Uh yes. Now if you were to try to find this information, who would you turn to, Stu? Who? Yeah. Uh, I would turn to one of our editors, Matt Brown or Jason Starrett. That's exactly what I did. Nice. It's scary that we think alike <laughs> on this. Matt Brown uh, responded and he said, looks a bit more common in the old days as in the 1950s, but the most recent example I see was 2001 Alabama, started number 25 after going 3-8 and eight the previous year. Next most recent I'm seeing is 1990 UCLA as preseason number 19 after going 3-7-1, and one, 
1989, Ohio State was number 25 after going 4-6-1. and one. I see one two-win team that started in the top 25 the next year. That was 1957, Notre Dame, and then a handful of three- and four-loss teams. Thank you very much, Matt Brown, for the intel. So the most, so the most recent of those was which one? 19, or 2001, Alabama started number 25 after going 3-8 and eight the previous year. I guess that was... A whole lot of faith in Dennis Francioni. Yeah, I guess so. Because that was, I remember Mike DeBose was the 3-8 and eight team. I actually didn't think, I thought maybe it would even have been that Notre Dame team, the Brian Kelly 4-8 team, that maybe they were ranked the next year, but you're apparently not. That there actually is a number you can get to where people won't put you in. That being said, there will be teams next year that went 4-8 and eight or worse last year that end up in the top 25. It's just, you know, good luck predicting who that will be. They went 4-8 and eight for a reason. It's hard to look at a team like that and say, oh, yeah, they'll definitely be in. But I guess Scott Frost in Nebraska is about as good a bet as anybody. Yeah, especially when you have a quarterback like they do. Just a, a phenomenal freshman year for Adrian Martinez. So a lot of excitement, and that's not a, that's not a bad thing with Nebraska because their fan base is it's pretty awesome, as you and I both can tell how passionate they are about reading stuff and just uh, have that program nationally relevant again I think is a good thing. Absolutely. I'm all for Nebraska being relevant and lots of great Nebraska coverage out there. We got one last email. It's actually an invitation, a unique invitation for the two of us from Mark Cromenhook. I really wish he'd put that pronunciation in there. He works at the New York Stock Exchange and he would be happy to give us a floor tour if either of both of us are in the New York or in NYC anytime soon. Have you ever toured the New York Stock Exchange? I have not, no. Um, neither have I. That would be really cool. And, well, you go to New York every year. I may be going to New York at some point. Uh, by the way, this is not a completely random connection here. His son is Eric Kromanek, number 84 on USC. Okay. Tight end. Sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you for that invite, Mark. Uh, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. I'm headed out on vacation so Bruce will be flying solo next week. But I promise a very, very exciting guest to take to step in. There's no, I mean, the last time I missed it because I was sick, you got Manny Diaz, and that turned out to be the interview of the year. So I have no doubt that I will miss out on some sort of A-list heavy hitter guest that you've got lined up. I have some, I have some, some, uh, some good people lined up to, to jump in for you, Stu. Sounds good. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at... SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already you can try it for free 7 day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial so come on get over here ah, yeah. we'll talk about it for years ah, yeah.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.